You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the New Testament book of James. New Testament book of James. If you're not sure where that is at, you can always just uh, use the table of contents. Or if you flip through your New Testament, you find Hebrews. It's a pretty big book. It's right after Hebrews. So go to Hebrews, find the one just to the right of it. You'll be in James, and we're in James chapter four, and we're gonna get into James chapter five a little bit today as well. So that's where we'll begin today. Let's go ahead and read our text from uh, James chapter four, end of James four, going into James five, starting in verse 13 of chapter four. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a short time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous, and he does not resist you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and as we open it this morning, as we read it, as we study it, Lord, we ask that you give us insight, help us to understand it, but also, Lord, would you please help us to apply it to our lives? We don't just want to be those who hear and nod and say, yes, that's true. We want to be those who take that next step uh, of faithful obedience where we say, yes, God, I'm not only going to hear your word, I'm not only going to agree with it, but I'm going to live it out and practice in my life. So Lord, we ask that you would, uh, by your grace, by your spirit, give us the ability and the strength to do that as we hear your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, so we're currently in a series called Faith in Motion. In this series, we are studying through the epistle of James or the letter of James. And the theme of this letter is how real faith manifests itself in actions. Real faith manifests itself in actions. This whole book, the message of it is this. If the gospel is true, and it is, if the gospel is true and we really believe it, then how will that affect the way that we live practically? How will it affect the way we live practically? The title of today's message is, What is Your Life? What is your life? That's a question James asks in this section we just read. Now let me ask you this. When you're reading the Bible, what are those sections that you get really excited about, right? Like you get pumped when you're like, oh yes, I love this kind of section. You know what I'm guessing it is? Maybe for you as it is for me, genealogies, right? We love the genealogies. We get pumped when we get to one of those genealogies and we're like, yes, finally another one. I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna you know, read this, savor it, take it in. You know, reading a genealogy in the Bible It's kind of like reading a phone book from a foreign country, right? Like it's just lists of names of people you've never met and you can barely pronounce. And uh, I'd like to begin today actually by reading you my, one of my favorite genealogies in the Bible. I'm not even joking. Uh, it's in Genesis chapter five. That's how we're gonna begin today. Genesis chapter five. It's one of those chapters that people generally skip over, but not us. We don't do that, right? We don't skip over stuff. First genealogy in the Bible. 
It covers 1,600 years of human history, which is, by the way, about how much time the rest of the Bible covers as well. So here in one chapter, in one fell swoop, God covers 1,600 years of human history, almost the same amount that he covers in the rest of the Bible after this. Let's, let's take a look at what it says, and here's how we're gonna do it. It's gonna be a little bit interactive. You'll, you'll hear me pause, and that'll be your cue. You'll, you'll pick it up. Let's go ahead and read Genesis chapter five, starting in verse three. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he what? He died, right, okay. So that's a kind of a bummer of an ending, right, to his story, right? That kind of ruins your day. That's not a good note to end on. Um, just before this genealogy, by the way, we were told how God created the world. And then when God created the world, he said, it is good, and he created people, and he said, they're very good. But then what happened? Those people he created rebelled against him. And that's not just their story. That's the story of all of our lives. We've all done that in our lives. We've all been created by God and rebelled against God. And as People rebelled against God. A foreign element entered into the good creation. This element is called sin. And that sin brought with it a repercussion. And that repercussion was death. And what we see here in Genesis chapter five basically is this. It's the fallout of what happened when people brought sin into the world, when people rebelled against God. Now we're seeing the fallout of it, which is this. Everybody who's born, no matter how long they live, Eventually, they die. So let's, let's pick up and see how the story continues. Pretty exciting. Here's how it goes. Verse six, when Seth lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he, guess what? Died, right? Okay, um, you see in the theme? Are you picking up on it yet? Right, everybody who lives eventually dies. Let's keep going. Verse nine, when Enosh lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died, right? Uh, again, he was born, he had a kid, and he died. It doesn't say anything else about these people, right? It's not like, oh, and he was a super great guy, and people liked him, and he had a lot of money, and he drove a nice car, and he had a window, he had, he had an office with a window in it, and he was good at sports, right? No, it doesn't say anything like that. It just says, well, he was born, uh, he had a kid, and then he died, right? He ate breakfast, had a kid, then he died. Super encouraging view of life. It's like, the, it's like the looking at a bunch of tombstones, right? That's how tombstones are. Date that they're born, date that they died. In the middle, there's only a dash. Doesn't tell us anything about them. Just date they're born, date they died, done. Very encouraging. Let's continue. Verse 12. When Kenan lived 70 years, he fathered Mahaliel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahaliel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. We see that these people live very long lives, but they still always die. Right? Get this, this is the 30,000 foot view on life, right? This is like zoom way out and this is human life. You're born, maybe you have a kid or two and then you die and that's it. And then the next generation is born, they have a kid or two, and then they die. I heard one person put it this way. He said, human history is kind of like a stationary bicycle. Every generation gets on, they pedal as hard as they can, they sweat, they, they work themselves to death, and then they fall off the bike and die. 
Then the next generation climbs on the bike. They pedal really hard and they work themselves to death. Then they die and they fall off the bike. And then the next generation gets on and they do the same thing, pedaling, 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 sweating. And guess what? It's a stationary bicycle. It's, we're not making any progress, right? Like we're not getting anywhere. We have mobile phones and the internet, but basically human existence is the same now as it was then. If anything, these guys live longer than we do, right? So now it comes our turn. We get on the, the, the stationary bicycle of life. We pedal as hard as we can. We work, we sweat, we toil, we stress out, we worry. And in the end, we die and our kids are gonna take our place and they're gonna do the same thing that we did and then their kids are gonna do the same thing. Maybe you say, Nick, this is the most depressing uh, I've, I've ever felt on a Sunday morning. And my point to you is, yes, I know, that's the point. That means that you're understanding uh, what this chapter is telling us. But stick with me, because it does change. Check this out. We're going to jump down to verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Enoch was, uh, he got started early, 65. He decided, you know, I've, uh, maybe it's time to settle down and have some kids. He couldn't even get social security. He was like a kid at that point compared to these other guys. But he's, uh, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah, 300 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And check this out. This is different, right? Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch lives 365 years. That's a lot less than some of the other people we've read about. But there's something different about Enoch's story. Everybody else lives, has a kid, and dies. But Enoch's story is different, right? The script is different. Enoch doesn't just live and has a kid and dies. Enoch lives, has a kid, and then he walks with God and he goes to heaven. See, this idea of walking with God, this is a theme that will run throughout the entirety of the Bible, from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Read about Adam and Eve, they walk with God in the Garden of Eden before sin comes into the world. And then even after that, Noah, it says Noah walked with God. Abraham walked with God. Isaac walked with God. This phrase continues into the New Testament, this idea of walking with God. And the question it makes us ask ourselves is this, do you walk with God? Because apparently, Walking with God is one of the most important, most significant things you can possibly do with your life. We're all born into this world where one day we're going to die. There's no amount of supplements that you can take, right? You can be taking as many supplements as you want and maybe you postpone it by about 15 minutes, but you're going to die. It can't be avoided. But what we see with this guy Enoch is there is actually one way to change this script, to, to change the end of this story. And that is this, to walk with God. To walk with God means to have a relationship with God. Walking implies movement. It implies progress. You're going somewhere. You're walking with God, right, in partnership, and you're going somewhere in a particular direction. Walking with God is more than just believing that he exists, right? Enoch believed that God exists, but he went beyond just believing to actually walking. That's an action. And the question, again, for us is this, do you walk with God? And notice what happens with Enoch as he walks with God. Something incredible happens. God takes him away. He doesn't just die like everybody else. He's taken by God to be with God forever. And that's a picture of the hope that we have in the gospel, Right, That one day, if we walk with God, one day we will go and be with God forever. We won't just die. Now, now let's see what happens. I wanna just look at one more person in this story. Verse 25, it says this. 
When Methuselah lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. And he, come on, one last time, and he died, right? Now, this, what this, Methuselah is the oldest person in the Bible, right? He lives the longest life of anybody in the Bible. And what this reminds us of, though, is this. He also dies, right? Eventually, he's not with us anymore. And it reminds us of this. It doesn't just matter how long you live. It matters how well you live. And it matters who you live for and who you walk with. You know, there's an interesting side note to Enoch's story before we move on and get back into James. And that's this. The New Testament book of Jude, that was little tiny one chapter books right before the book of Revelation, it mentions this guy, Enoch. And what it says there in Jude, it says that Enoch was a prophet of God and he preached a message of repentance and turning to God to people in his generation. It's pretty cool. It doesn't mention that here in Genesis chapter five, but Enoch was a, was a guy who not only walked with God, but he served God. But here's what I wanna point out to you. The fact that Enoch's service for God is not mentioned in Genesis chapter five tells us something very important about God. You know what that is? That as God was recording history, he didn't find it important or noteworthy to mention the ministry that Enoch did for him. What was important to God to mention in this story when he said, hey, let me tell you about this guy, Enoch. What did God wanna talk about? The fact that Enoch walked with him that Enoch had a relationship with him. That's what God was excited about, right? That's what brought joy to God's heart in regard to Enoch. Not the ministry that Enoch did for him, but the, uh, not the service Enoch did for him, but the fact that Enoch walked with God and went to heaven. And so that brings us to our text today in James chapter 14, uh, James chapter three, I'm sorry, there's not, uh, James chapter three, I'm sorry, one more time. James chapter four, verse 13 uh, through five, chapter six. Here in this section, James poses for us a very important question. The question is this, what is your life? What is your life? Think about that. What are you about? What is the purpose? What is the meaning of your life? And there are three things that James tells us about life here in this section. Number one, life is short. Number two, what you do with your life matters. And number three, how to get rich and stay rich. Okay, life is short. What you do with your life matters and how to get rich and stay rich. Let's start with this first one. Life is short. So James begins this section in chapter four, verse 13. And here's what he says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and we'll trade and make a profit. James is saying, now look, I wanna talk to those of you who are planning your life, who are thinking ahead and making plans for what you're gonna do in your life. How many of you guys like to plan ahead, right? Like I, I like to plan ahead. I'm a planner, I like planning. Um, now how many of you guys, how far out are you planned, right? Planned out like six weeks. Maybe some of you guys are planned out six months. Maybe some of you guys are hyper planners. You're planned out six years, you have a plan. Some of you guys, you have a 10 year or a 20 year plan for your life. Um, you know what you're gonna be doing in the next stage of your life. You're making plans now. Maybe you're thinking about college and, and you're wondering what degree you should pursue. Maybe, you're, uh, maybe you've got kids and you know that the time is coming when they're going to finish school and you're thinking about the next stage and planning for that as well in your life. Maybe you're saving up for something. Maybe you're planning to go on a trip somewhere. 
It's a good thing to plan ahead. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's studious and good for us to count the cost and to make plans and to think ahead. That's a good thing. The problem, the Bible says, is not making plans. The problem is that most of us don't think far enough ahead, right? We, we, we're too short-sighted, in other words. Every one of us, in some way, we think about the future. And in some way, we kind of plan for the future, even if it, you know, varying degrees of how detailed our plans are. But what the Bible would say is, what a lot of people fail to do is they fail to think far enough ahead. They're too short-sighted. We're too short-sighted, right? We only think six months down the road or six years or maybe 20 years. But James is telling us that's not enough, actually. Do you know that? You actually need to be thinking farther out even than that. You need to have the wisdom to be thinking out even farther than that. And so maybe you ask the question, well, how far in advance should we be looking? How far in advance should we be planning? Well, look at what he says in verse 14. He says, look, you're doing all this planning. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And now maybe you read that and you think, wait a second, so is James telling us that we shouldn't make plans because we don't know what tomorrow will bring? No, actually just the opposite. I'm gonna show you that and we're we're gonna see it in the following verses. What James is actually doing, he's contrasting two different ways of approaching life and, and making plans and how you spend your time and, and what you do. What James is warning us against is not, he's not warning us against planning ahead. He's not saying that's bad. Quite the opposite. What he's saying is that the problem is that so many of us were too short-sighted in the way that we plan our lives. The problem isn't that we're looking ahead. The problem is that we're not looking far enough ahead. Look at what James says in verse 14. He says, here's the big question. What is your life? Why are you here? What is your life about? Why do you exist? What is the purpose and the meaning of your life? And James is gonna answer that question for us. Are you ready for it? Here's his big answer. He says, your life is a mist. It appears for a short time and then vanishes. I don't know about you, but I was kind of hoping for something a little more grandiose than that, right? Like I was hoping, like he'd he'd say something different, right? He says, what is your life? It's like a poof. Like here, you know what your life is? It's like this. That's it. One, two, 1,000, 2,000, done. That's it. You're here for a moment. Do you miss it? There's another one. That's your life. That's what James says. And you're like, wow, James, I was kind of hoping for something a little better, right? Like I was kind of hoping uh, that you'd say something like, you know, what is your life? You're a child of God. Like you're a son or daughter of the king. Like you are the most dangerous, most important, most valuable thing on the earth. God created you with gifts and talents for significance. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, tell me more about that. I'm pumped, right? But that's not James, right? James like, you know what your life is? It's like air freshener, right? You push it once, gone. You see it for a second, it's done. That's it. That's your life. In the grand scheme of things, you're here for like two seconds. That's what James tells us. You're like, James, that doesn't feel very good when you say that. But here's what I want to tell you. This is actually a very good thing that James is telling us. In fact, this is perhaps the most hopeful definition of what life is. It's the most encouraging, most brilliant definition of life that you're ever gonna hear. It's the most freeing and most encouraging. Let me explain to you why. Because knowing this can actually give you so much perspective on life and it can give you so much hope. Because here's what his point is, is this. Life is short. Life is short. And we see over and over throughout the Bible another principle. Not only is this life short, but God wants you to understand this. The end of your life here on earth 
is not the end of you. The end of your life here on earth is not the end of you. Yes, one day you will set aside this body. You will leave this flesh and blood place, but that's not the end of you. Every person is going to spend eternity somewhere. The question is where? Jesus continually taught, and all of the Bible teaches, right, the heaven and hell. These are real places, and not everybody's going to heaven. And so depending on where you're at with God, this news that your life is just a mist, this is either really encouraging, really exciting news, or it's really frightening news. If you put your faith in Jesus, it's a very hopeful thing because it means that all the suffering of this life, all the hardships that you face, they're only momentary. They're not gonna last forever. One day, the day will come when all of the sickness and sorrow and pain will end. On the other hand, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus and what what he's done to save you, then this prospect of the, the fact that life is short and judgment is coming, that's a frightening one. And it should be, but it doesn't have to be. Why? Because God offers salvation and mercy and grace freely to anyone who will accept it. So the point here is this, life is short, but the end of your life here on earth is not the end of you. Oh, oh, eventually you will end this earthly portion of your life. This body you have now is like a tent and one day it's gonna be folded up and set aside, but you, your soul, who you really are at the core will continue on living. You know, Jesus told a parable one time which is called the parable of the rich fool. The parable of the rich fool, it's found in Luke chapter 12. And here's what it says, it says this, Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Sounds like a pretty good plan, right? Basically what he's describing is retirement. He's worked really hard, he's saved up, and now he can actually retire. Good idea, right? It's, that's nice. He's, he thought ahead and he's planning for retirement. But look what the parable says next. Uh, the man's speaking to himself, which is you know odd, but here's what he says. I will say to my soul, and by the way, let me just stop there. That's the key to understanding this whole parable, that word right there, soul. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you prepared, whose will they be? And he says this, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. That's pretty strong language, right? To call somebody a fool. Why would God call this man a fool? Well, well, let's see why. This man wasn't a fool because uh, he planned ahead. He wasn't a fool because he was rich. He was very smart when it came to business and planning ahead with his money. But he was a fool when it came to thinking about eternity. He was a fool because he gave no thought to eternity. He made no preparation for eternity. He had a great five-year plan. He had a great retirement plan. But what made this man a fool is that he didn't think ahead and he didn't plan for eternity. This man looked ahead and planned for the future, but he was too short-sighted. That's what made him a fool. He didn't look far enough ahead. He didn't plan for his ultimate future. And here's the thing, the man in this story, all his financial planning, all his hard work, all his retirement savings, it couldn't do anything to help him in eternity. And here's the thing, for each and every one of us, right? Look at what God says to this man. Your soul is required of you. 
For each and every one of us, there will come a day when, like this man, your life will be required of you, and you will have to give an account to God for your soul. And the point of this parable is this. If you don't prepare for that, if you don't think about that now, you're a fool. And so how should this knowledge, how should this knowledge that life is short, that it's just a mist that appears for a moment and then is gone, and after this comes eternity, how should that knowledge affect the way that you live your life here and now? Look at what James says in the next verse, in verse 15. He says, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, then we will live and do this and that. What is James saying? Is he just saying that, Here's what you got to do, guys. You just got to tack this little phrase on to everything you say, and then you'll be solid, right? Then you'll be good, right? Like, so instead of saying, honey, I'm going to go watch football with my friends, you say, honey, if the Lord wills it, I'm going to go watch football with my friends, bye, right? Like, uh, or, or like, is that all James wants us to do? It's like, almost like just kind of a superstitious add-on to every statement we make, right? Like, I'm going to go to the store if the Lord wills it, right? Like, I'm going to go to work if the Lord wills it. it I, it's kind of like, is that all that he wants? He just wants us to say these words before we do anything? I don't think so. I think there's something more that God wants out of us than that. Or maybe, James is saying, you might say, what James is saying is that we should submit our plans to God. In other words, I make my plans, and then I say to God, okay, God, I've made my plans, but if you want to change them, that's okay with me. Now, that's a good thing to do, right? We should certainly do that. But I want to tell you this. James is actually telling us to do something even more comprehensive than that. It's not just we make our plans and say, okay, God, here's my plans. Change them if you want. No, it's, it's more comprehensive than that. Here's what James is saying. He's saying, because life is short and eternity is long and we're racing towards eternity, here's how we should approach our lives here on earth. We should approach our lives by saying this, God, the whole purpose of my life is to do your will. That's it. I run everything through that filter and I say, God, the purpose of my life is to do your will. I have this short window of time, maybe 80 years or so, while I've got breath in my lungs. And my goal in my life, my whole approach to life, is not going to be to have my best life now. You know that? As Christians, our best life is not here. Our best life is to come. We're not trying to have our best life now. Rather, I dedicate my life, these few years that I have here on earth, to God and his purposes. That's a very different approach to life. That's a very different approach because rather than just caring about my dreams and fulfilling my vision for my life, I'm asking God, God, what is your vision for my life? God, how would you have me use the time, talent, and resources that you've given me how would you have me live this life? God, what is your will for my life? It's a very different approach. We're not just saying, okay, God, here's my plan. Now please bless it. We're saying, God, what is your plan? What is your vision for my life? Let me align with that. So here's what James says. He says in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Now let's put this in context. What James has told us up until this point in chapter four, he's been talking about the pitfalls of pride and the importance of humility, both in our relationships with other people and in our relationship with God. And so James here is continuing that theme of humble submission to God and where, where the opposite of that is when you act like you're your own Lord and master, right? Where you say, I don't have to submit to anybody. I don't have to answer to anyone, any God, whatever. In fact, you know what? If there is a God, 
he kind of has to answer to me because I've got some questions. There are some things that I disagree with him on and I'm gonna call him out on those things, right? That's a different approach. What James is telling us is that what it means to walk humbly before God is an entire approach to life which says this, my life is not my own. Everything I have has been given to me for a short amount of time. And so my whole approach to life is, God, what is your will for my life? What would you have me do? What is your vision for my life? So what is your life? Here's what it is. It is a mist that appears for a moment and then is gone. Life is short, and after this comes eternity, so we need to live accordingly. So let me ask you that question, and that brings us to our second point. What does it mean to live accordingly? What does it mean? uh, How do our lives matter? Why does it matter how we live here and now? So our second point is this. What you do with your life matters. Look at what James says in the last verse of chapter four. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Now James is returning to one of the great themes of this letter, which is that real faith manifests itself in actions. Real faith manifests itself in actions. It's one thing to know the right things. It's one thing to say the right things or nod your head in agreement with the right things. But what you do reveals where you are really at. And so here in chapter four, James has listed in our prior study, we read this, a lot of good things that we can do. For example, he said to us, resist the devil and draw near to God. That's a good thing. He told us, lament and weep over your sin and humble yourself before God. That's a good thing to do. He said, it's good to speak well of others and not to speak evil. Those are all good things. But now James brings it home and he says, look, we've talked about a lot of really good things. Now here's the question. Will you actually do those things? Will you do those things? Let me ask you, what do our, why do our actions matter? Why does it matter if we do those things? Why does it matter what we do with our lives? I mean, in some ways, some, sometimes Christians take the approach where they say, you know, if, if life is short and eternity is long, then all that really matters is that I need to punch my, you know, uh, my ticket to heaven and then ride out this life, right? And try not to mess it up, right? Try not to sin a lot and just like wait for death, right? And that's what the Christian life is. Trying not to sin and hoping I die fairly soon, right? And, uh, but James says, no, the way you live your life actually matters. Why? Well, he alludes to it here in verse 17, but James really answers this question in the beginning of chapter five. Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, for you, that's a sin. We're actually gonna dive more into this idea of what you might call sins of omission rather than sins of commission in our community groups. So make sure you pick up one of those study guides in the back and prepare for your community group. But what is a sin? Well, a sin is not just a mistake that you make. A sin is actually an offense against God. And so what James is telling us here in chapter five, as he gets into chapter five, what he's saying is this, All of us are going to stand before God one day. Do you know that? That you are going to stand before God one day, either for reward or for judgment, but all of us are going to stand before God one day. There's a sense in which you could say this, that all paths in life do ultimately lead to God, right? The Bible would say that. Let's put it this way. No matter what you believe, no matter how you live your life, the Bible says that one day all people will stand before God and give an account, won't they? You will stand before God one day. 
But not everybody who stands before God, which is everybody, not everybody will stand before God for the same purpose. Some people will stand before God to be judged for their actions, but other people will stand before God to be rewarded for their actions, right? The Bible describes two judgment seats and basically two lines. The one line leads to the seat for judgment. The other line leads to the seat for rewards. And of course, it's much better to stand in the seat Uh, stand in the line for rewards rather than the line for judgment. So how do you make sure that you get in the line for rewards and not the line for judgment? Here's what the Bible tells us by putting your faith and trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross where he took the judgment for your sins that you deserved. You see, because Jesus took the judgment you deserved, if you embrace that, if you embrace that by faith and trust, if you embrace what he did for you, the Bible says that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. He took all the judgment for our sins. And so when you stand before God, if you're in Christ, you won't stand there to be judged for your sins. Jesus already did that. No, you'll stand before God, before that seat of reward to receive a reward for the good things you've done in his name for other people. The Bible tells us this, that God sees our actions and he rewards us accordingly. So, you know, most people I've talked to, I've noticed that this, that most people I've talked to tend to assume that heaven and hell are going to be the same experience for everybody in them, right? That everybody who's in heaven is gonna have a similar experience and everybody who's in hell is gonna have the same experience. What's interesting though, is that whenever the Bible talks about reward and judgment, it's not equal. It actually uses quite the opposite language. It actually says that there are some people who will receive more rewards than others, and there are some people, like in judgment, who will receive more judgment than other people, right? Jesus talked about certain cities, for example, and certain people who would receive greater judgment than others because of their actions. He talked about different levels of reward as well for those uh, who were faithful, Now, as we get into chapter five, uh, just to summarize, in verses one through six, James describes a group of rich people who were doing four things. They were hoarding wealth, they were ripping off workers, they were not generous, and they were oppressing the weak. And James warns them that unless they repent and stop doing these things, God is gonna judge them for those actions. But what James is telling us here is this, your life is short and what you do with your life matters because one day you're gonna stand before God, either for judgment or either for reward, but either way, your actions here on earth matter a lot. They have repercussions for eternity. You know, there are a few things that you can only do here on earth that you won't be able to do after this life is over. For example, here on earth, this is the only opportunity you have to relieve another person's suffering. You can relieve suffering. You can give someone hope here in this life. Another thing you can do only in this life is receive salvation and forgiveness of your sins and justification. That's something you can only do in this life. And of course, the other thing you can only do in this life is share the good news about Jesus with others and help them receive that forgiveness and new life as well. And so because this life is short and eternity is long, what you do with this life matters. Your actions have implications for eternity, not just for you, but for others as well. And that brings us to our final point, which is this. How do you get rich and stay rich? How do you get rich and stay rich? Again, in chapter five, James is speaking to a group of rich people, and here's what he tells them about why their actions matter. He tells them in in chapter five, verse three, you have laid up treasure 
in the last day. Another translation puts it this way. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. You know, one of the things we've been talking about a lot through James is that James makes a lot of references to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so you might remember that Jesus said something very similar to this. He said this, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me bring you back to that parable of the rich fool. Do you remember that story about, that we just talked about a few minutes ago? At the end of the parable, Jesus calls this man a fool for not thinking about and not planning for eternity. But check out what he says in the very last phrase. He says this, so is the person who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You know, here's the thing. I have never met anybody who thinks that they are rich, right? Like even people who I think they're rich, if I talk to them, they'll be like, oh, no, no, I'm not rich. I mean, I live a comfortable life, but I'm not rich. Uh, so when most of us read this parable about the rich fool or we read like James chapter five and it talks about rich people, we assume that that's somebody else, right? Like we picture in our heads somebody who's a little richer than we are or maybe a lot richer than we are and we say, wow, I sure hope they hear this message because this is for them and not for me. And we assume again that these words aren't for us. But here's, here's what I wanna tell you. These words are absolutely for us, guys. You know this, just a few statistics for you. We are the richest people literally in the history of the world, right? So if Jesus was talking to people, he would be talking to us. We are the richest people who have ever lived in the history of the world. You know that we, if you, if you live like a middle class or even like lower middle class life, you live on a level that kings and queens did not live on in the past. We are the richest people in the world. And you know what that means? Jesus is talking to me and he's talking to you in these worlds, in these words. Is it bad to be rich? Not at all. You know what God cares about? God doesn't care so much about your bottom line as he cares about uh, where you got that money and how you spend that money. Where you got what you have and what you do with it. A lot of people say, if I had more, then I would be more generous. But I'm here to tell you guys, if we are the richest people who have ever lived in the history of the world and we're not generous, then it's probably not a matter of income as it is a matter of lifestyle. Okay, and I wanna challenge you, like James challenges these guys, like Jesus challenged people who he talked to, to ask yourself this question. Will you be a rich fool who is poor towards God? Or will you take this one life you've been given and all the resources you have and use them to make a difference both now and for eternity? Here's the thing about money. Money can be an obstacle to the kingdom of God or it can be a tool for the kingdom of God. It can be an obstacle, or it can be a tool. There are several examples of both in the Bible. You know, Paul the Apostle, he said, money, the love of money is the root of all evil. And he said, it's caused some people to walk away from the faith. Jesus told the story of a rich young ruler, right, who, who came to him and money, wealth was an obstacle. And yet, we also see that Paul raised money to give for humanitarian causes. He wasn't against money. It, the thing is, money can either be an obstacle or it can be a tool depending on what you do with it and how you use it. What's for sure is this. Life is short and you can't take anything with you. You can't take anything with you. And so what should we do? Let's make sure that we're rich before God and we store up treasure in heaven. So I'll just finish with this. How do you get rich and stay rich? The first and most important way to get rich and stay rich is to have a relationship with God 
through Jesus Christ. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul talks about how in Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing. We are spiritually rich. To be rich towards God, it means to walk with God and have that dynamic relationship with God in which you experience his presence in your life and his power working through your life. How do we store up treasure in heaven? Here's how. By investing the time, talent, and resources that God has given you here and now in a way that reaps spiritual dividends that last beyond this life, right? Changed lives, changed hearts, doing God's work in a way that stores up a, a, an eternal reward. If you're looking for ways to do that, we'd love to help you get involved. Just on your bulletin, there's that rip-off sheet where you can fill out, I wanna serve. We'd love to help you find ways to do that in our church, but there are a ton of ways to do that outside of this church as well. I wanna encourage you to do that. In conclusion, what is your life? Here's what it is. Your life is short. It's a mist. But what you do with your life and how you live your life matters greatly. Why? Because all of us are gonna stand before God one day and... What you do in this life determines where you will spend eternity and maybe even how other people will spend eternity. Here's the good news of the gospel. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, he says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. John Stott put it this way, the essence of sin is that we substitute ourselves for God we put ourselves where only God deserves to be. But the essence of salvation is that God substitutes himself for us and puts himself where we deserve to be. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and he took your place. He paid your debt, he took your curse so that rather than dying, you can walk with God and live forever. Jesus took your judgment so that through him you can be rich towards God. He took the judgment for your bad deeds so that when you stand before God, you can be rewarded for your good deeds. How do you respond to that kind of love and that kind of grace? Guys, that question right there, how do we respond to that kind of love and grace? That is the key to the adventure which is the Christian life, right? It's every day as we're looking for ways to respond to his goodness and grace and store up treasure in heaven using the time and talent and resources that he's given us. So I pray that as you leave here today, you leave with a heart of thankfulness for what Jesus has done for you and a sense of excitement and wonder, wondering how you can use what he's given you to store up treasure in heaven and be truly rich. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and grace towards us. And Lord, our desire is to respond to that love and grace um, in the way that we live our lives. Lord, thank you that you became poor so that we could become rich. Lord, may we live our lives uh, pouring out what you've given us, the time, talents, and resources in order, in order to make other people rich and in order to store up treasure in heaven. Lord, we bless you and we honor you and we Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.